Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or ROW, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At ROW, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this interview, we turn our focus to the link between food and mood. The science on this is clear. What you eat can impact on your mental well-being. While food choice can be impacted by how you feel, research shows food may also be a mood trigger, particularly for low moods. Recent studies show that the more people improve their food choices, the more their depression improves, and food choices have been positively linked to learning and memory. Clearly, nutrition is an important part then of mental health at work. Joining us in this session to take a deep dive into the world of food and mood is our guest and fellow Roe community member, Bronwyn Hudson. Bronwyn has over 20 years of experience across nutrition, health and well-being, education and children's development and understands the real-world challenges relating to health, balance and adopting change. We explore the current science, how you can support nutrition at work and tips and tricks for improving brain and gut health. I think like most people that end up in these types of fields, it's full of lived personal experience that's drawn me down this pathway. So I always enjoyed food and cooking, but in terms of the nutritional science aspect of it, I first became interested back in the early 2000s when my fiance at the time, now my husband, experienced, he was a professional rugby player at the time, and he developed chronic fatigue from a post-viral overtraining combination. And I think for anyone that's experienced burnout or chronic fatigue or post-viral syndromes, syndromes, they'll know there's, you know, there's no quick fix and a lot of it is reliant on diet and lifestyle choices. So that's what initially drew me down this path. And then as the children came along and there was different um, health challenges for me and for them and allergies and autoimmune conditions, um, I just became more and more interested in this. And in terms of the food mood connection or the mental health, while my husband uh, recovered from chronic fatigue. He has continued over the years to have quite a few challenges with his mental health. So my husband is speaks out reasonably publicly about some of those challenges now. He's Craig Hudson, managing director at Zero here in New Zealand, and he he had he's had quite a few periods of uh, depression, on and off antidepressants, and then an episode of acute mental distress where he decided that we would all be better off without him alive. And he went about a plan actioning that, which would have left me as a single mum with four children and no house because we'd just sold it in preparation to move to the UK. So I guess, you know, really blessed that, that Craig is still here and that he's here to tell his story and that I have my own story that runs alongside that, that I get given a voice for that a lot of people in my position that, love someone with a mental health challenge and um, don't often get to tell a story from the perspective that I do. And I think because he's given it a voice, it gives me permission as well, which is really interesting. So I now hold a master's of science in personalized nutrition. And I've got a real passion for the role that nutrition plays in 
in our mental well-being. And as you said, you know, referring to that as the food mood connection and just the way that, yeah, it's it's just so much more than a job. It's a real passion because of of the some of the stories and the journeys that I've had along the way. It's a real privilege. Yeah. And tell me, Bronwyn, just before we jump into you, so tell me a little bit around the journey that you've recently been on, because you and I have been talking a bit about this in terms of recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in the intro, you said something about having overcome health challenges and I was thinking, hmm, you know, it's still, still managing health challenges in a way. So just on three years ago this month, actually, I fractured my C5 vertebrae in my neck along with some, you know, herniated disc and some other soft tissue damage while I was showing one of my daughters how to do a shoulder stand for her gymnastics class. Turns out I should stick to nutrition, not really a nutrition, not a gymnast. And that's been quite a challenging journey in a lot of ways. You know, there was the initial rehab aspect to that, but also some ongoing chronic pain resulted from that, mainly having had headaches nonstop for three years, although that's mostly under control now with some some other with some medicinal cannabis. But um I, you know, still very much have had to learn a lot, a lot that I've learned in the last three years about pacing about making sure that how I do spend the functional time that I have in a day doing things that really align to my values and lots of opportunity for learning but definitely has been yeah been a, a challenge that we had some some similarities in our in our management on very much so and and so let's go back to the, the food mood connection what are we talking about when we say food mood connection Yes, I think we can probably all think of some pretty obvious examples of that ourselves, especially those of us with children that have seen that crash that can come after a sugar high and seeing that there is connections between what we eat and and how we're feeling or anyone that's ever been hangry, you know, maybe blood sugars have dropped a bit low and we, you know, even things like having eaten I won't name any fast food joints, but there's one in particular that if I eat from, I feel really blah afterwards. So, you know, we we experience those things and vice versa. Perhaps, you know, anyone ever been prone to a bit of stress eating or hormonal eating? So looking at how our moods are actually impacting on our food choices. And what we're talking about when we're talking about the way that food um, and mood, it affects our mood and vice versa. We're talking about really the gut-brain axis. So it's these communication channels between the gut and the brain. And the communication is bi-directional. It goes both ways, gut and the brain helping each other make decisions on what they need to do. So the way I often like to describe it is that the gut and the brain are like best friends and they, they like chatting away with each other. Just like best friends do, they sometimes talk over top of each other And sometimes it can be very hard to know exactly which one was the instigator of a certain behaviour or a certain action that might take place. So gut and the brain are very much the same. And if I think about the ways that we communicate with our friends or, you know, Sarah, what's a couple of ways that you you communicate with people at the moment? Probably a lot of it's social media or email. (laughs) Yeah, so email, social media, absolutely. Things like this, video calls. We still communicate face-to-face. Yeah, text, phone, less and less. I hardly ever get phone calls anymore. Um, I'm not linking that to my self-worth at all. But, um, you know, there's so many different ways that we communicate. And so these communications between the gut and the brain are, are similar. There's so many different channels that the communication is happening. So one of the main, well, there's 
probably four main ones I'd mentioned today. So one is the neurological system. So if we think of our digestive system starting from our mouth right the way through to our bottom, it's really a, a tube that is external to our, it's got complete access to the external world. It's basically open. And the whole way down that channel, there is quite dense nerve endings. And so those nerve endings are feeding information back to the brain via central nervous system, via the vagus nerve, really as the main mediator point through there. We also have the immune system. So about 70 to 80% of the immune system resides in the gut. And our immune system has a lot of inflammatory and anti-inflammatory influences on the brain. And we're seeing more and more now about how, how inflammation is playing a role in mental health. So this is another way that the gut and the brain are receiving and sending signals that are impacting on our mental health. I said four, didn't I? Now I have to remember four. Um, peptides, things like lectin and ghrelin and cholecystokinin, these are things that regulate our hunger and our satiety, the sense of fullness or whether we're hungry. And so they are sending signals from the gut to the brain as well to regulate what we're doing in terms of our eating. So lots of things happening there. But one of the, the ones that probably most closely relates to what we commonly think of with our mental health would be the neurotransmitters. So we have lots of neurotransmitters. One particularly well-known one would be serotonin. So serotonin is the happy hormone and it's the target of a lot of antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications. So a group of medications called SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So serotonin, GABA is another very important one. It's a calming neurotransmitter, very good at bringing down that anxiety and stress uh, and activating our parasympathetic nervous system or our rest and digest response. Um, or dopamine, dopamine's another one you hear of regularly. That's the more stimulating high. So neurotransmitters are made in the gut. They're made from amino acids that come from our diet. So amino acids being the building blocks of protein. And they get absorbed through the gut lining and are traveling to the brain where they're affecting our mood and our functioning and our mental well-being in a whole lot of ways. So that's just sort of four main connections, but there's lots of lots of ways that the gut and the brain are communicating. Yeah, that's fascinating. And actually, as you're talking about the neurotransmitters, I thought, well, there's a good one I'd like to dive into. Because if, um, particularly speaking of dopamine, so if I use my own experience, I know with ADHD, one of the issues with that is the low uptake of dopamine. What's interesting as well, uh, Parkinson's is the same, fibromyalgia is the same. So there's obviously an issue there on the uptake of dopamine. So if you're thinking of that as a small example, from a nutrition point of view, what are some of the things you could be thinking about or I could be thinking about? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It makes an impact. So looking at the, particularly at the neurotransmitters that, so the particular proteins that contain the neurotransmitters that are going to be made into dopamine so that you're starting by providing at least the right um, nutrients that are going to be involved in and making sure that your body is creating enough and you may need more than the general population for it to be used and absorbed in the right way. But we don't, the other thing is, is there's, so there's lots of amazing research happening around food mood connection at the moment. Some of it happening right here in good old New Zealand, Dr. Julia Rutledge and her team at the University of Canterbury, looking at the role of micronutrients in mental health. And if I think about some of 
you're thinking, asking about dopamine and neurotransmitters. So as well as the amino acids, we need certain nutrient cofactors, different vitamins that will play a role in transferring the amino acid into the neurotransmitter. So just a general good diet that is containing all of those micronutrients that we need in good levels is key. And then thinking very much about your microbiome. So that would be the other huge explosion area of research in relation to mental health and a particular a particular interest area of mine. And we now know that the microbes are playing a big role in this transversion, this creation of the neurotransmitters. So anything that you can do to support a healthy gut microbiome is also going to be supporting your level of neurotransmitters in your body, including dopamine. Fantastic. And actually, so in terms of some of that technicality, because some people will be familiar with those terms and others that'll be quite new. So the microbiome, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the microbiome is all of the, the microbes, um, yeast, fungi, bacteria that live on and in our body. And the particular aspect of the microbiome that I was talking about there was the gut microbiome. So that's where we have the most densely um, concentrated uh, area of microbes in our body. They live, they're everywhere. They're on our skin. They're in our mouth. They're, they're everywhere. But in our gut, we need a particularly diverse range of microbes to play out the roles that they need. And it's quite a new area of understanding, just really starting to specifically link these mechanisms between microbes in our gut and different areas of health, and particularly more recently around the mental health um, We've only had really the skills to be able to sequence the microbes quite recently. So it's my most popular test in clinic at the moment is people getting microbiome testing done. Really, really useful. But lots of things can throw out the balance of the microbes in our gut. So obvious things like medications, um, antibiotics often get the, you know, the worst rap around that, although they're such a valuable piece of um, you know, obviously, if you've got uh, an infection that's going to need some antibiotics, it's the most useful tool that we've got. But it's about understanding different things that affect our microbiome. So stress puts the uh, balance out as well. And the things that are very supportive are things like eating a hugely wide range, diverse range of vegetables and plant-based foods that are going to feed the guys we want to do really well and keep the other ones in balance. Hmm. Yeah, and then I imagine that, yeah, that gives your body a chance to then actually do something useful with those nutrients and, and help your mental health. Uh, yeah. I was interested in the, in the emerging research because there's, you know, anything from what the tablets you can take with, you know, with fecal matter and then there's, you know, some of the, the work again that Julia's doing around the, the micronutrients. So what are some of the really big research trends that we're seeing coming through? Yeah, that's a cool question, actually. So, yeah, so obviously love the, the research that's happening here. So that is to do with broad spectrum of multinutrients. So it can be quite challenging to create those types of studies. So often research that's existed to date has been single nutrient studies because that is easier often to blind. It's very hard to do food trials because you can't really blind easily a food trial, whereas you can, you know, how do you have a placebo in a food trial it can be challenging to provide a good level of, of evidence base. So Julia's work is involved using broad spectrum micronutrient supplementation, which is super interesting. Food Mood Institute at Deakin University in Australia has masses of research being done all the time in this field 
So they've got some really interesting research and probably the two best when we look at um, the evidence-based paradigm that gets used for medicine, so highest level of research down to lowest level of research, you know, we know that a randomised control trial is up in that higher level of research in terms of its validity. And there's been two very good randomised control trials done on food and mood. Both of them were looking at the Mediterranean diet or a modified Mediterranean diet and mental health outcomes versus the control group was receiving social support, so counselling or psychologists, et cetera, but not the food aspect. And I'm a huge advocate of therapy and of, and even not even like I use it proactively. I um, see a psychologist as a ad hoc thing just when I, for, for all sorts of reasons, not because I'm anywhere near an edge of a cliff, but you know, it's a very valuable tool. But what this research was showing that when you put the, the food alongside that, there was statistically significant increase in mental well-being versus those that didn't have the dietary um, support. And there's so that was the SMILES trial, and there was another one looking also at Mediterranean-style diet and fish oil supplementation versus placebo, and that was also shown to be really supportive. So loads and loads of research happening in this space. Yeah, fascinating. And it sounds like there are particular types of foods out the Mediterranean diet, for example, that, that seems to have some really good evidence around it. So what do you find if you're sort of heading into a workplace and, and you start talking about a lot of this? And I imagine some of it sounds quite foreign or it sounds like there's a lot of changes or it sounds perhaps, you know, like someone might have to go through a huge amount of change in order to be looking after themselves. So how do you kind of break, break that down or make that kind of an easy approach for people to start looking at their diet and thinking, what's helping me and what might be standing in the way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's any change is challenging for us and dietary change is no different. So there's such a psychological aspect of this as well. And, and there's such a psychological aspect of connections between food and mood, actually, which I'd love to come back to. But I like to start by looking at a positive change that you can make. So it's not about what do I need to cut out or what do I need to give up because that's so challenging. So it can be as simple as what's the one big thing, <laughs> something flying in front of my face, what's the one big thing that, you know, what's the, what's the one small change that you could make that would have the biggest impact and just start with one thing. And often for people, I find that that's increasing their vegetable intake. So lots of people tell me that they eat you know, they eat their five plus a day. But when we really start looking at the diversity of plant foods that we need to eat to encourage a healthy microbiome and to, to get a good wide range of micronutrients and all of those factors, um, you're looking at, at needing some figures. I haven't seen any big research behind it, but this number I see bandied around often is 30 different plant foods a week to encourage a nice diverse microbiome. So I often see people might have their five plus a day, but it's pretty much the same foods coming through all the time. So just going next time you're in the supermarket, there's one vegetable that you don't normally buy and adding, sorry, that you don't normally buy and that you would add to your grocery shop that week and just give it a go. And then if you're doing that over... Yeah, over a period of time, before you know it, you've got new foods that you like, new regular things you're putting in your trolley and new recipes to go alongside that. So, yeah, I think it's just about starting really small and adding in a positive behaviour as opposed to trying to take out a particular type of, of food. 
Yeah, I love that. I've, I've written that down as a little kind of handy tip to, to share at the end. It's just the, the one thing each time. That, that sounds really doable for people. Mm. So let's talk about food trends then. You know, we talked about the Mediterranean diet as one type of eating. Are there other general patterns of eating that people can look to to help the mental health? Mental health, yeah. I mean, food trends is a it's an interesting term. I mean, there's always a lot of food trends around. Often they become quite fad-like. So I think if I was to follow any rules, it would probably be good old Michael Pollan's seven words of his food rules. Eat food, not too much, and mostly plants. You know, nice broad apply to all sorts of situations. I think sometimes it's an, a matter of needing to unlearn a little bit about what a trend, about things that you've picked up because of trends or popular media presenting things and just really tuning back into what's actually working for you. So sometimes I find people have cut food groups out or eating in a specific way to follow guidelines of a particular food trend and they've stopped listening to whether that's actually working for their body or not. So. Mm. That's actually one thing I wanted to pick up on. So I think when you, when you and I were talking, I said that my honours research was actually on midlife and relationship, particularly for adults, with food and body image. And so mm-hmm. I was really interested to hear your perspective around because what you're already indicating there too is we've talked about nutrition, eating it, and how that helps your mental health, but there's also the reverse around how mental health impacts what we choose to eat. Mm-hmm. And I was keen to hear, you know, your perspective. Yeah, yeah, your research sounds absolutely fascinating and such a crucial thing for us to consider. I think a huge part of the picture. So lots of damage can actually be done when we start linking food, you know, either becoming too obsessive about what we're eating or if we're linking what we eat to how we look or ultimately our self-worth. So one of the things that part of why I love the food mood connection and focusing on actually how food makes us feel rather than how food makes us look, it's it's just so much more important. And there is so lots of psychological connections between food and mood, but there's lots of positive psychological connections as well. You know, food is often how we celebrate. It's often how we come together and connect. It's often, it can be related to our culture, to, to being a reminder of uh uh, a beautiful moment, a, a holiday or something we've been on to Italy and every time we eat a certain food, it reminds us of that. You know, there's so many psychological connections. And I think as a society, we've placed too much emphasis on health being related to how we look and the way of looking that dictates whether someone looks healthy or not uh, I had a, I mean, I'm a big advocate of health at every size approach. So we all know someone that probably that's really slim, that's actually really got lots of quite challenging health behaviours or even health issues. And likewise, people in larger bodies who have really robust health, really good blood markers all within healthy ranges. So it's, yeah, there's a lot, lot to consider there. I had a client just made me think recently, I had a client who had come to me because she was wanting to lose a little bit of weight that she'd put on after she'd got her anxiety under control with some medication. But before that happened, she'd lost a lot of weight when she was in a really bad place mentally. And her mother had known what was going on with her and knew she was really struggling and yet was often parading her to her friends, doesn't she look fabulous? And yet she'd lost that weight in not at all a healthy manner. So, yeah, there's so many 
possible connections between between food and the psychological aspect that affects our mental health, which are really important. Mm, and I do think it's an interesting part of, you know, we're starting to talk more about those words, mental health literacy. And mm. so there's almost some literacy in what we look at in other people and whether we perceive them to be healthy or not. And as you say, we, we might go, oh, well, therefore this equals healthier when actually the behaviours probably tell a, a different story. Yeah. And so I'm kind of interested then to, if we move to workplaces, and gosh, there's so much to unpack about how workplaces can support this. <laughs> Let's start with where we are now in terms of, um, you know, nutrition and, and and making food choices and those sorts of things. And then we'll come back to the, the food mood connection part where it's the, the other way around. So what can workplaces be doing to, you know, promote good food choices, to enable people to make healthy food choices, but also avoiding that, you know, as we've just been talking about, that kind of you should, you know, thou shall kind of messaging that I know does come through sometimes yeah absolutely and I think yeah it's it's a tricky one because sometimes workplaces say to me well nutrition is it's not up to me to, to talk to my people about how they should eat and 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 I get that you know it's a very um different thing to be having nutrition brought into workplaces but it's actually about all sorts of elements. We all want an engaged and productive workforce. And we put lots of different things in our wellbeing strategies in place to ensure that that's what we're supporting our employees to be in good health, to be present, to be focused, right? So if we think that business performance is driven by human performance, we want our people to be well-fueled and set up to perform well. And we also know that there's a lot of connection between um, connections, building connections and sense of belonging being really important for resilience and mental health. But when I think about workplaces, often the opportunities to connect and feel part of something and socialise with others in your workplace revolves around drinks and food that is potentially not supporting people to be able to make the best choices. So sometimes it's just as simple as thinking about when I put food on or when we provide social engagements, what's available? And if people are provided with the right environment, it's easier for them to make healthy choices. And likewise, just thinking about what you've got in your kitchen and places for people to bring food in. You know, what's your food fridge storage like? Is your fridge often full? You know, is there enough space? Could it be that it's too full and you're needing another one? Or how can we, you know, make that more accessible to people? And what other options is there? You know, do you have a microwave? Do you have a blender? Blender's a good one. I remember one of my very first workshops in a corporate environment in the UK, I'd done some actual cooking demonstrations and that included making a smoothie. I had a smoothie workshop. And so the business bought to Nutribullets for their work kitchen. And about a week later, they sent me a photo of just all, how many people were making smoothies. And it was because, and you know, nice vegetable protein um, fruit smoothies that they were enabled to do because they were provided with the tools. So that can be really useful to, to look at. And I would challenge that, you know, as in terms of, we're not telling people what to do, but and it, we do want to help build self-efficacy so that people can make the best choices for themselves for their own health. And I do believe that that's part of the role of an organisation to do. I think that when we can provide education and environments that support people to take control of their own well-being, absolutely we want that. And, you know, we do two um, 
so I have my own business as Feel Your Wellbeing, where I do a mixture of corporate, academic and private clinical practice. But my husband and I together also have always more to the story where we're focused on the creation of psychologically safe workplaces. So I think if we build those things together, we've got psychologically safe workplaces that are encouraging healthy lifestyles and we genuinely care about our people. I truly believe that we could all be playing a role in turning around some of those negative, quite horrendous mental health statistics that we do have here in New Zealand. And of course, we want to be part of that, don't we? Yeah, that's that's so powerful. And that's so true. And there's, there's a few things I want to follow up from what you said, because I think it's, it's so interesting. One, I, I just have to share with you. So I recently bought a neutral bullet too, and got very excited about all the things that I could whiz up. I whizzed up coleslaw. It is a disgusting smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> it turns out there is a limit to the things that you can actually make a smoothie out of. Um, Absolutely. I've never tried coleslaw in a blender, but it was very brave of you. It's horrid. It's horrid. <laughs> I won't try it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to come back to the messaging because I think this is this is really interesting. So one of the examples that I have in my head is it was a, a client in Christchurch that had someone come in and talk about um, the different, the different foods, and they really put the black mark on carbohydrates. And so then this person who shared the story with me went into the lunchroom after, went to eat her sandwich, and her colleague said, oh, you shouldn't be eating that. That's bad for you. And I was thinking, there's this, so there's some really interesting messages, isn't there, around how we set up nutrition and the personalised choices, but also the healthy choices within that. Is that something you're finding? Yeah, and absolutely, and keeping the guilt and, and those things out of it, because you know, when I'm looking at how we can use food to support mental health, all of that type of messaging is detrimental for mental well-being. So it, all the way through with, with my kids even, you know, I've never used the words or I've tried not to, I'm sure I've slipped at times, to label food as good or bad because I don't believe any food is inherently good or bad. And it's all about the overall balance of what we're eating, you know, tuning into our body. And at times, I mean, we all have some behaviours that aren't angelic. And my diet is, you know, certainly has a lot of flexibility and freedom within it. But because I know how something will make me feel, sometimes I'll be like, you know what, I'm I'm not going, I, I just, it, it just doesn't even appeal to me to eat that cupcake or something because I know that I've got something important on that afternoon and that I will have a sugar crash afterwards because I'm quite sensitive to blood glucose um, fluctuations. But there'll be other times where I'm like, well, you know, it's Nana's 90th birthday and this is part of the celebration and it actually doesn't matter if I'm going to feel a bit, you know, less focused afterwards because I don't need to be on form. So we can start tuning into those types of choices. So with the kids, I used to talk about everyday foods and sometimes foods as opposed to anything being good or bad. There's just some foods that we only eat sometimes and there's other foods that are really nourishing that we, you know, to try and eat every day. Poor carbohydrates have been so vilified, haven't they? Well, I think it's so funny considering carrots have carbohydrates. It's kind of like... Yeah, and, you know, when we look at things like, so, you know, I talked a little bit about serotonin being particularly, you know, linked to or historically has been linked very much to depression, hence why this whole, you know, school of medication was designed to increase the, the amount of serotonin available to the brain. Well, it actually needs carbohydrates in order to, to create that transfer as well. So often a low, so this is where working with people, it's about being very clear on what their goals are as well. And, there's certainly times when a low-carb diet is totally applicable to a person that I'm working with. And there's other times where I'm actually increasing them to bring some carbohydrates back in. And that's particularly in the clients that are experiencing 
low mood um, and anxiety where actually sometimes they need to, to bring in the right form of carbohydrates and the right balance for them. And it can be so much unlearning required. Mm. Yeah, oh, I just think that's so true. And so actually that's a really good lead to, to where I wanted to go next. But, you know, with this being a new research area looking at, say, the, the gut microbiome and how that connects with the brain, how would you start to introduce some of that messaging? Because for some people, as you said, it's going to be unlearning a lot of what they think it might for them and some it might sound like quite far out. It's quite different to the old food pyramid and what our beliefs were around food. So how do you start to introduce some of those newer concepts to people? Bit by bit, I guess. And so it's all just education and meeting different groups of people where they're at. I find that it's easier to come in with the elements that they very uh, relate to very easily to begin with. So when I'm looking at food mood connections, I often start with blood glucose balancing because blood glucose balancing underpins so much of how we feel in a day anyway. You know, if we can keep that a nice balanced levels across the day, we can minimize that 3 p.m. energy dip and that also blood low blood glucose mimics anxiety. So a lot of those symptoms that you can get can get quite jittery, can get you know, heart palpitations, all sorts of symptoms with low blood sugar that can feel very much like anxiety or if you're prone to anxiety could even be playing a role in triggering anxiety. So I like to start with things that people can relate to very easily and then just build from there. Mm. Well, I was thinking it sounds like even for workplaces that would, that would be an easy place to start if, if people are familiar with the yeah, the 2 p.m., 3 p.m. crash, that, yes. that might be a nice time to have some messaging around, you know, are you experiencing this? And here's some helpful hints or things. Absolutely. In fact, that's one of my most popular corporate workshops is around yeah, maximizing energy across the day and minimizing the 3 p.m. energy slump. And I think probably because people that are choosing that, it's choosing that that's the workshop they'd like me to deliver it know that they're wanting to support productivity of their team, but also that we all relate to that and have experienced it at some point in time. So it's a really good place to start. I do a number of, of different workshops um, and businesses that are tailored, uh, you know, tailored to what they want, but you know, that's one. And then I do a food mood connection one separately. So you sort of lay in the groundwork and then there's you know, food mood connection and personalized wellbeing strategies and different things that we look at um, there. Mm. And that would be so helpful for people to sort of work out, yeah, what is it they need to change, you know, yeah. along the way. And so looking ahead, you know, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of research on the go and there's new trends and new things starting to come through. What are you looking at ahead? What, where does the next sort of five years look in, in terms of this food mode connection research? Yeah, I I know I would love it to be part of, just become much more mainstream that people, when they're thinking about their mood, are thinking about how their lifestyle and nutrition choices can come in there. So there's lots of, there's lots of different products coming to market around this now. So it'd be interesting to see how some of them go. A lot of them I haven't seen enough robust research around yet to, to know exactly where I sit. So we're starting to see things like probiotics, um, certain strains of probiotics now being marketed as psychobiotics. So specific strains of probiotics that are going to impact on our psychology. We're seeing, uh, what else did I just see recently? I mean, we see, you know, different drinks and things that are supposed to help. But I get sent all sorts of different links from people saying, what do you think about this? It's another one I had recently. Oh, I, I think I asked you about this one. Where do you stand on activated 
And it's such a personalized thing. Yeah, I don't know. We just might have talked about activated almonds. And it's it comes down to where people are at with their digestive system. So I can eat almonds now, no problem. But I certainly went through a stage where it was at the, around the onset of an autoimmune condition that I'd developed. And autoimmune conditions are very linked to gut health. And often it's, you know, this creation of where the, the tight junctions of the cells and the intestinal lining have create and become a little bit loose and different particles can move their way through into the bloodstream and our immune response reacts to that with in the way that it should do but it didn't need to react to this particular food particle and so our, our gut health can be very challenging and if you're in that sorts of situation then making anything is uh, absorbable and as digestible as possible, like activating your almonds can be really important um, or minimizing your nuts intake. In fact, I had a really good example of how, um, you know, there's a good old saying, one man's food's another man's poison, right? And that's where the personalization comes in a lot. But perfect snack to balance blood glucose levels is celery and peanut butter absolutely beautiful and you've got some protein and you've got a vegetable and you've got you know it, it's great and I over ate that for a while it was a few years back we were still living down in Papa Mars it was before we moved to the UK and I just remember going through this phase of peanut butter and celery and I was eating it all the time and it was around the same time as I was having you know around this onset of an autoimmune condition and I developed an, like an oral allergy syndrome to celery. I couldn't eat celery without my whole mouth burning. Thankfully, I can again now, but I couldn't eat it for a number of years. So there's so many things that are, are very individualized and personalized to each person. And, you know, I would never say celery is a bad food, but eating it often is, you know, almonds are good, but if you're eating them often, then activating them is going to, to make them more digestible. Yeah, interesting. Not overlooking things as important as, you know, the way that we eat. You're still coming back to those real fundamentals of nutrition as well. Are we taking time to sit down and eat? And so a good couple of deep breaths before you eat a meal or a practice like giving thanks for your food is a nice settling down, mindful thinking about your food and then chewing it really, really well so that it can be better absorbed once it gets to your guts. And the more we can absorb, the more impact all those micro and macronutrients are going to be having on our health and our mental well-being. So all it's still all very relevant for mental health. Yeah, still really, really important. I see there's some questions coming through, but I'll, I'll encourage you if there are any more questions to come through to keep typing them in now. And I do have another question for you. I was reflecting as you were talking about just how important that nutrition is for mental health. And at the moment, I guess in many workplaces, the easy go-to of someone is recovering from something is EAP. But should we be considering, you know, some kind of help with nutrition as a as another part of that framework? Yeah, absolutely. Like EAP is something that I am passionate about, and you know, got to play a role in the putting together of some of the Zero Zap programs, the Zero Assistance program there, and that was based on Craig's personal experience with mental health so it's such a vital tool that I think every workplace should be providing alongside that absolutely I think where I thought you were going to ask with this is that when we sent because we had the conversation in our house last night is when someone in your workplace is struggling when you put together a little you know delivery box for them and my husband was just saying last night oh we sent this food to these people but he's like this is the photo of it and look it's it's not at all you know it's, it's nice and homemade looking but it was 
not the type of food that he felt they needed in that moment and that there's a hole in the market around providing really nourishing nutrition meals, nutritious meals. That's what I thought you were going to say. But only because it was in my, and so it's thinking about those things though. So when someone is unwell, what are you providing them in support? And if you're sending them a food parcel, is it the type of food that's going to support their health during that time? But absolutely looking at other ways that can support them as well and maybe subsidising or funding work with a registered clinical nutritionist can have a big impact, Um, hmm, you know, or a dietitian or, you know, anyone that's qualified in that field. I do as well, which workplaces often find quite, you know, fabulous is coming. I set up in an office room for a day and people can book in just 30-minute appointments even where we just look at one goal and just one or two takeaways that they can take from that to go and implement in their life that would support them reaching that health and wellbeing goal with nutrition and lifestyle measures. And just little things like that can go a long way towards encouraging your people to be It's still helping their self-efficacy. It's not telling them what they can and can't eat, as you mentioned before, but it's about supporting them to move down their own um, journey in a way that's going to support them. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.